welcome to Podcast Revolutions, a look at how China came to be the way that it is today, Chinese modern history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China starting from 1839 or so. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is kind of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. The usual announcements, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. If you'd like to join the substack, uh, building the uh, podcast community, uh, you can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com. And if you do that, please, or uh, just in general, please send me an email at ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you what you think about the podcast. Here we go. Uh, last week we talked about the Opium War and the settlement of that conflict, highlights of the Treaty of Nanjing, August 29, 1842, which we shall presently relate. There was a huge monetary indemnity to pay back traders uh, who had brought opium to China and paying them back for the confiscated opium and pay back Britain for the cost of the war. You know, you made us do this, so you're going to pay for it. Uh, it handed Hong Kong over, Hong Kong Island over to Britain as a permanent colony, uh, and it ended the monopoly of the Canton trading houses, and it opened the five treaty ports for European uh, trade, European business, including Shanghai, by the way, and so Shanghai is very quickly going to overtake Canton as a center of trade between China and the rest of the world, and it extended extraterritoriality privileges to foreigners so that they were subject to their judges from their own nationality, like so probably the consul in the city in question, rather than Chinese law, Chinese punishments, and everything that had been happening, the you know average and not so average Chinese saw all of this happening, and some of this is going to go into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, today's episode uh, and the Taiping Rebellion as it unfolds, the two primary books that I'm going to be drawing on are God's Chinese Son by Jonathan D. Spence and Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by Stephen R. Platt. So Platt gave us the book uh, Imperial Twilight. He's also giving us the one of the books that we're going to be drawing on for this next bit of the podcast, a good lot of material. Uh, he's going to come in much more at the end at, with the suppression of the uh, Taiping Rebellion. So, as we go along with the story of the Taiping Rebellion, uh, we will be dealing with increasing influence of foreign powers in China. So everything that comes after the Opium War overlaps with the start of that movement, uh, and the movement starts with materials brought in because of foreign missionary activity, and now you know they're allowed to be going around at least coastal China, until the Second Opium War opens up the uh, inland parts of China. 
because of the treaties signed at the end of the Opium War. And so, you know, if somebody wants to sneak in to to China, it's going to be a bit easier because it's allowed now. Well, at any rate, they're allowed further up the coast, so then they start from more advantageous positions as opposed to trying to jump off from Canton and hope for the best. So both are going to be intertwined as we go along, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the unequal treaties or the treaty ports except uh, where they really start to come in for how they influence the course of the Taiping Rebellion. And part of why, and it, as we look at the Taiping Rebellion, it, it, as far as I can tell, it's pretty much a classic you know, end of a dynasty, weird Chinese cult that takes off and causes a lot of destruction and you know, then the next movement that really does replace the ailing dynasty, uh, that they don't re that, that comes after the weird little Chinese cult does its thing. Okay. Why? Okay. Let's, let me talk more about the term weird little Chinese cult. Okay. This is my own term. It's, more specifically, those are millenarian movements promising some huge change, return of a deity, change of the age, the, a new historical time period. Uh, millenarian, I believe, comes from like, Christian theology. The millennium is some kind of, you know, after the end of the world, God's going to fix everything. It's going to be wonderful for a thousand years. So, you so you see a lot of christian almost cults like this that do things well you can copy the term over to movements in asia as well cuz they you know, there's some view that you know god is god the gods somebody's going to come back and set everything right well it merges perennial grievances with claims of authority to settle everything, you know, usually by armed uprising. These things show up in times of weakness, usually at the end of a dynasty, and we'll go over some examples. Uh, every one of these is different. Specific goals are unique to every historical context. Uh, the best thing I can say about the Chinese repression of foreign religions uh, is when you look at the history, these rebellions coming from the actions of weird little Chinese cults tend to kill tens or hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. Uh, you can compare that to the European wars of religion. And, you know, so you look at the Thirty Years' War, the uh, different conflicts after the Reformation, any of the conflicts between Catholic and Orthodox, conflicts of that scale were happening in China at the you know at similar time periods killing similar amounts of people so uh, closer into the Taiping rebellion we can see the white lotus rebellion from 1794 to 1804 it's more uh, specifically focused in Hubei Shanxi and Sichuan uh, is based on Buddhism, Return of the Buddha, 
you know, had some base and a desire to restore something like the Ming Dynasty, uh, which came about as a result, you know, if, from overthrowing the Mongol Yuan Dynasty. So the Manchu Qing Dynasty, the Han would like to replace that with their own sort of thing. You go even further back to the start of the Ming Dynasty, the Red Turban Rebellion, uh, 1351 to 1368, that's 17, 18 years, a series of rebellions against the Yuan dynasty. And so whether this directly fed into the start of the Ming or it was just, you know, kind of coincidental, kind of like the Yellow Turban Rebellion at the end of the Han dynasty, we're thinking about four or 500, no, no, uh, two or 300 AD, sorry, uh, the Red Turban Rebellion in the mid-1300s led to the end of the Yuan Dynasty and the beginning of the Ming Dynasty. So this weird little Chinese cult thing typically had a basis in religions local to China. Taiping Rebellion, um, this is different because it took its core materials from a religion much newer to China. And part of why we're talking about it is that it's, an insp it's going to be an inspiration uh, to later generations of Chinese revolutionaries. Also, it's going to be part of why foreign powers are going to be getting involved in China in the ways that they will. Uh, the Opium War, uh, the first one, officially ended in 1842. So I'd like to talk about some of what Chinese would have been seeing. Like they're, they're seeing Chinese naval ships blown out of the water by foreign naval ships that everybody kind of knew, like, whoa, these guys have some uh, pretty interesting weapons on them. But here they are actually seeing the Chinese Navy blown out of the water. Uh, so I'm drawing from the book God's Chinese Son here uh, by uh, Jonathan Spence. So British naval attacks on Chinese vessels uh, there were new and unusual ways to die, a, a explosions of powder magazines because of British rockets coming in, coming from their ironclads. So, like uh, completely iron, so ironclad ships were uh, just get, setting off at this time. Uh, British industrial methods meant that they could make ships out of iron instead of needing to. Probably, like a lot of the hull would probably still be wood, but just they, they were able to get that much iron reliably to uh, to armor their ships, uh, and the the state of bodies, you know, blown to pieces from huge explosions, um, explosions of gunpowder bags carried by Chinese soldiers. I don't know how much that would. I don't know how much the Chinese used gunpowder in previous conflicts. Uh, the, I mean, the cannon were much more common than I used to think that they were. Um, uh, the explosion of a ship bought from the Americans is an, is an episode uh, related by the... Uh, related by uh, Spence, um, where even where China had gunpowder and fireworks for centuries, perhaps the scale on which the British were using it and the extent to which they relied on it to create their destructive uh, effects in, in the military action, 
it was much greater, perhaps, than the average Chinese would have been used to. Maybe Chinese naval combat before, was, okay, they, they had cannons, um, they had ships knocking each other apart with cannons, and then you'd hope to get up with boarding actions, and so guys with swords and spears and stuff jump aboard. Well, when the British came, the enemy, you know, the, the British, they're fighting entirely with ranged weapons, with explosives, with much more fiery destruction than previous than was previously familiar to you know Chinese war fighting uh, the so so even before where you have the local pirates you know running away from the somewhat ineffectual Chinese navy well actually seeing it before your eyes wiped out any pretense that the emperor's navy had anything going on for it just seeing this all blown away that's gonna leave a mark on the local understanding of how things work and to be fair to china the main thing is the refinement of british weaponry like so the, the chinese had cannons they had uh, muskets they had gunpowder but you know and as the taiping rebellion gets going we're going to see widespread usage of explosives you know, so war forces adoption, adaptation, innovation, and weapon technology. Uh, but the the British, who had been over decade after decade of naval combat, you know, for national survival, they had been refining all of their weaponry and their coordination and everything. So, where, where the the Chinese would occasionally have to put down huge pirate fleets. But they weren't having decade after decade, century after century of primarily naval conflict like the British had been having. And so when the British show up, they wipe the floor with them. And you know, when when you see that and you're local Chinese, that that's gonna make an impression. So a state of disruption, uh, secret societies are also a very Chinese thing. You see them all through Chinese history. Uh, and kind of the start of the Taiping movement is going to be kind of a secret society. When a despised dynasty is going down, secret societies form dedicated to the overthrow and replacement of that regime. So uh, we're going to then move on to the actual founder of the Taiping movement. Uh, his name known to history is Hong Xiuquan. He was born Hong Huoxiu, and we will later explain why it was changed. He changed it uh, as a result of a religious vision. He was born in the early 1800s in South China uh, to a farming family. Uh, they were Hakka. Uh, they were not totally excluded from mainstream Chinese society, like they, they weren't a minority group. Uh, they, they were kind of Chinese, but depending on what side of the fence you're on, either the Hakka are like the real, most pure Chinese with the language being the most authentic modern representation of ancient Chinese, or they're somewhat foreign, maybe a little strange, but still kind of Chinese. Uh, so the and the the Hakka didn't do the the foot binding that was very common at the time. Uh, his family had some heritage of passing the civil service exams, so he has that in his family. Uh, some history of 
family members serving in high positions, like from previous dynasties, it's easier to live it down if, you know, it's some guy from generations ago. His father uh, was respected in the community that they lived in. They lived in a district newly carved out of a sort of wild west area of China with a lot of bandits. And so the government had finally been able to do something in response to local appeals, and so they gave they assigned a governor to the area, assigned a regional police force, schools, and more care for infrastructure, this sort of thing. So it was it was kind of out of the way. In God's Chinese Son by Jonathan Spence, he describes the very intricate community religious rituals that were followed in that area, state-prescribed rituals for worshipping gods, for harvest, for peace, for prosperity, preventing disease, preventing disaster. Uh, also, the I mean, the practice of Confucianism is is an interesting mix of religion and the state being involved in religion, and uh, also part of it was appeasement of spirits for the dead. So there's a very, very active local religious scene. So when Hong Xiuquan makes his change, he's going to be... So he was raised in a very, very religious environment, and so even if he completely shreds everything around him, he's still going to have a very active religious uh, base material to be working with. Sometimes he was employed as a village school teacher, and so we're going to see he's going to be one of those educated people who didn't make it in the main system, uh, but nevertheless he has a huge impact on China. In this case, he's going to be causing a lot of trouble, destruction, and death through uh, how his movement worked and the need for this force to suppress it. So he's, as we get more into the Taiping movement, we're going to see him write things and make uh, appeals to local authorities in their own official Confucian language, in their own way of writing. He's going to get his his followers off sometimes when they are imprisoned for various things. He's going to appeal to local authorities for why they shouldn't be persecuting his movement. And he... So whether or not he has, you know, has sustaining literary merit, he knows how to write well enough to at least come up with, you know, the fan fiction version of classical literature and religious literature. I have a friend who was talking about a uh, a, a religion related to Christianity. And he was talking about one of their foundational texts, basically like being a fan fiction version of the Bible. Uh, it, it does take some talent even to be able to write fan fiction. Uh, he went to Canton in 1836 to take the prefectural Confucian civil service examinations. There's a lot of prestige in passing the exam, and again in the book God's Chinese Son, uh, there's an extensive description of the honor given to students who pass. Like, think of the think of your high school graduation. You don't just get a piece of paper in the mail. You 
you you actually have to be there in the the school stadium. You parade in, sit through speeches, walk across the stage to get your diploma or the cover, really, because it's just easier to hand somebody a cover and then you go uh, later and find your name. They you parade out, party afterward. You really take your sweet time celebrating it because you suffered for all you know K through twelve. Um, and so you, you appreciate it, but this is so, but this is very, very ex- exclusive, a drawn out ritual, you know, worship of Confucius by the successful students, you know, making sure to go thank their teachers and tutors, receiving the official tokens of their new status as, as members of society who have passed to the Confucian civil service exams. So while Hong is there in Canton in 1836, he meets a Protestant missionary, possibly a guy named Edwin Stevens. Uh, one, of the mo- one of the things Protestant missionaries were trying to do at various times was dress and act exactly like Chinese people, like even dyeing their hair black. Uh, the, uh, the approach toward you know, Chinese culture, they're, they're, they're trying to trying to merge as closely as possible with the Chinese idea of being civilized. And the thing is, if it's chance meetings with some teacher like this, um, this is the sort of story that is in the origin stories of so many weird little Chinese cults. If you ever read Romance of the Three Kingdoms, the guy who started the Yellow Turban uh, Rebellion, he himself had a meeting with a Taoist master who turned into mist at some point. And so here's Hong Xiuquan's, haha, I, I met the the master with the divine teachings moment. The, the Protestant missionary strategy included targeting potentially influential classes of people to make a wider impact on society. And so here's a missionary handing out tracts to students, taking the civil service examinations, their potential future officials, governors, functionaries. And so he, uh, and so the kind of the story goes, Hong meets a Chinese guy translating into Cantonese for this foreign looking man dressed a little bit out of fashion, maybe Ming dynasty fashion. Um, the the foreign man tells passers-by the fulfillment of their wishes. This is in quotes. Uh, Jonathan Spence is quoting a specific account, so I'm relying on his, what, his, what his source would be. Um, so the fulfillment of their wishes, like telling them about Jesus, like Jesus is the ultimate desire of every person kind of thing, and he tells Hong, you know, you will attain the highest rank, but do not be grieved, for grief will make you sick. So I, I don't know if that's, if this is the version that Hong would tell later as part of his thing, or, because, you know, for, for all we know, you know, okay, if, if it was this, uh, this Edwin Stevens guy, you know, he handed out a tract and on to the next guy. He probably didn't know who Hong Xiuquan was, let alone was going to be. So it's just, here, here's a, a tract for a student. And he sees them, and Hong sees them the next day, and he receives the book, Good Words for Exhorting the Age, a collection of tracts by Liang Afa, 
a Chinese convert to Protestant Christianity, and we'll come back to him in a later episode as we're going over the evolution of Taiping teachings uh, and in, in, in more detail and looking at Liang Afa as a source. Because um, Hong Xiuquan is going to come down and meet more with Protestant missionaries, but that gets into the story of the Taiping movement itself. Um, at so at this time, there was also a Buddhist Taoist tract called the Jade Record, which and it was in circulation. It's kind of like a Dante's Inferno, describing different punishments for different sins and offenses. And it was suppressed by official religious authorities because it was kind of worked against Confucian ideas. And according to Wikipedia, it was banned by the Taiping authorities as well when they got going. But that's because it was based in Taoism or Buddhism rather than anything approaching Christianity. And in 1837, Hong Xiuquan comes back to Canton for another attempt at the civil service exam very high-pressure environment, extra high-pressure this time. And so he finds out that he fails, and he orders a sedan chair ride home. So he can't even walk home. He's he's going to have to be carried for the, the long trip back into the interior of China. I, I Maybe a few days' trip. And he's laid up on, on a sickbed, um, he thinks it's his deathbed because of, he's having a nervous breakdown. He has a series of fever dreams featuring images from religious tracts in circulation at the time, as best I can tell from reading the uh, the story of it. Characters like the King of Heaven, King of Hell, a heavenly mother, like his own heavenly mother. And we're going to be getting into how he understands himself to be directly the Son of God. We'll go into more detail about this in future episodes, I need to draw up the outline of, because now that we're finally here at the Taiping Rebellion, I need to draw up what the outline is going to look like. He receives a commission to fight demons on the earth and lead the people to righteousness. And he made, you know, um, and so he, these visions or hallucinations he's having there are a bunch of things that can kind of cause wires to cross in religious messaging. So, you know, there's kind of a heaven, there's kind of a hell, there's kind of uh, a king over the heaven part of things, kind of a fatherly figure, kind of family of deities. He's getting into this world-saving, world-cleansing mission uh, with a heaven and hell populated with Chinese deities and so, and they're including him in this heavenly family. Now, here's why I took two whole episodes to talk about Protestant missionaries and the message they are bringing. This, this is why Hong Xiuquan receives this Christian tract, kind of going over the whole story of the Bible, the whole Christian interpretation of history, and translating Christian ideas into Chinese, Possibly a lot of ter literary terms that he'd know from his classical education, because you know, when you translate, you try to find what people already understand, like like the name God for God. Well, apparently that's some Germanic word, but people know what that is, and so you just keep saying God. Uh, 
whether or not it referred to some other thing before Christianity, it's the the word people understand. So Christianity brings the universal message to all the world. How the world fell from its created exalted state, talks about sins and offenses against God, talks about who God's enemies are, how to fight against them, how Jesus Christ is the solution to all that, kind of gives an end of days message, okay, millenarian again, like for a millennium, destruction of the sinful world, final condemnation of sinners, return of Christ, judgment of evil, restoration of paradise, a message about wiping out false gods, about uh, getting rid of things that are deceiving you, some of these things being deceptions prepared by devils. And so Hong Xiuquan, a man in time of crisis, he's having a nervous breakdown and everything that he's been working toward is not working out. And this tract from Liang Afa works out to be the, the key to the meaning of his visions, that it gives him a planned, like it gives him an outline that everything fits into. It gives him a big picture where kind of where everything goes. And Hong will later draw on the Bible and other Christian resources as he develops the Taiping movement, and he's going to bend them to fit his agenda. Um, so he's so there, there's definitely a, a Chinese uh, backbone to all this. But he's going to be borrowing extensively from Christian materials. So to to sum up about who we've just met today, Hong Xiuquan, he's a he's an educated Chinese man from humble origins. He's been trying to pass the civil service examinations, so his you know future destiny, his future vocation is kind of on the line, and he has a kind of a religious inclination. I don't think you start a religion if you don't have that. Um, he starts getting visions in his this time of nervous breakdown, and he's and he's tapping into a religious tradition that gives him lengths of story and myth to work with, to shape his own religion and ideology as the movement gets gets going. If you think about Norway in World War II, yes, this has a connection. Uh, there was Quisling, uh, Vidkun Quisling, the leader of Norway who collaborated with the Nazis. Well, he came up with his own religion. He wrote up to like 2,000 pages of his own philosophy and thinking. But no one cares. You know, it, too much of it is just, it's the stamp of being his own thing. Uh, like, it's too much of a, you know, eccentric smart guy writing eccentric smart guy things and no one really wants to go with it, but Hong Xiuquan, uh, he wrote an existing tradition. Like So he borrowed from Christianity, which has been very, very well worked out to be a religion of the people. You know, it's been a state ideology. It's been a you know, something for the people. It, it, and it plugged in more with expressed needs and common concerns. So because he wasn't just making it up because he's so smart, he has dynamite material to work with. So whereas Quisling was just an eccentric who happened to go along with the Nazis, uh, Hong Xiuquan is working with much more popularly accessible materials. And so we have begun 
the story of the Taiping Rebellion. This again has been Nathan Bennett for Chinese Revolutions. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can join the substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. And please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.